Hello and welcome to Life Beyond Sport. My name is Nick Keller. I'm the founder of Beyond Sport. And each week I get to sit with people from public life and talk about their life's journey through their three most meaningful sports moments. Today's guest is just coming to the end of a tenure of eight years leading world rugby. Brett Gosper is heading off to the NFL, so a senior position there. We have a fantastic time together talking about his sliding doors moment as a young trialist for the Australian national team that truly went on to shape his life, really. An immersive journey into French rugby in the 80s and at the same time, his parallel journey to the top of the advertising industry. And finally, we talk about a singular moment that defined two, two Rugby World Cups. It's reflective, it's personal, it's truly a life beyond sport, and it's fantastic stuff. Enjoy the pod, and please welcome Brett Gosper. Hi, Brett. So uh, great to see you. How are you doing? Very good. Very good indeed. Keeping well during these difficult times, but um, and in transition, obviously, between... Uh, just about between. I've got my last week at World Rugby happening now and then move into the NFL after that. So you're moving house as well, you just told me. Exactly, yeah, and moving house. Um, all change, uh, so quite quite, quite a different world for me in about two weeks' time on every front. Excellent. And um, so it, pro probably a reasonable time to reflect back um, on eight years, eight years at World Rugby, um, the IRB when you started. Um did you sit down with a blank piece of paper at the beginning and set out some KPIs, some goals? And, and as you reflect back now, um, how are you feeling about those? Or actually, did you not? Did you think, actually, you know what, I'm going to decide what those goals are when, when I'm a year, year into, the, into the gig, really? Yeah, I think, look, you can make all sorts of assumptions before you join a place and really feel you understand what's needed and actually until you hit the place and are confronted by the realities, which is unfortunate in some way because your naivety helps you dream a bit bigger sometimes. So you go in with some preconceived ideas of some of the issues around the place. And some of those I think I did take forward. And in other areas, you, you, you made discoveries that quickly um, set aside any objectives you might've had in that area or changed them quite dramatically. But I, I guess when I, first arrived at the IRB, my biggest concern for the organization was, was one as a marketing person, because I'm, a, I'm an advertising person uh, you know, in a business sense, historically. And the two things that in any new client that you, you walk in the door to help is, you know, who are you and, and what does your brand stand for? And I, and I think both of those questions were difficult to answer at World Rugby, uh, sorry, at the IRB, the IRB itself, was a few initials that people outside of the sport didn't know what it was. If you're in the sport, you knew exactly who it was. But if you're on a conquest strategy like the IRB was saying they were, then you needed something far more compelling and, and, and simple to understand who was actually sending messages out. So the, the rebranding of World Rugby, uh, what do you stand for? Uh, simply put, was around the territory of character, um, but all the values and all the behaviour flow from that. Um, and I think you know, just moving the name of the organization to something that went from just being a, a, the kind of the name of their board almost mm. um, to something which was broader to a brand, to a movement was incredibly helpful. Um, and at the same time, I think the objective, you know, without droning on too much, 
the really simple objective I had in my mind was moving the organization, which I felt had a very legal um, regulatory feel to it, to being far more fan facing. And so my shtick for the eight and a half years was from regulation to inspiration. And it was more about inspiring audiences than regulating the game. Not that we don't regulate the game, but it was yeah. just an emphasis and, and a resource. Uh, so was that the key revelation once you got in is you just found that this is just about governance. This has no, like you said, inspiration behind it. Yeah, look, it, it, it wasn't that black and white because obviously the inspiration that came out of World Cups was, was humming very well. Um, but generally speaking, that was an emphasis change. Not that there was an absence of inspiration mm. and, and not that we needed to turn our backs on regulation, but the organization needed to be far more fan facing, far, far more inspiring as it gathered, um, not just players, which was the other thing that seemed to be the obsession. The obsession was around um, participation mm. and no one talked about the numbers of fans uh, or, you know, social media platforms and, and following and all of the rest of it. That almost wasn't counted. And I think recalibrating what success looked like around the total impact of the sport on the fan base, not just on the player population, was also a change in that mindset moving from regulation to inspiration. Because regulation and the union size of participation was very much how the funding was working, and we were very locked into that participation world, which I don't think was allowing us to expand our inspirational footprint as much as it could. Yeah. And you, you, you coined the look. You and I have had a few, a few conversations in the past, but you coined that phrase that this is about character, and that was the the way the values. Of, of the sport would be expressed through that kind of very simple prism of character. And um, do you think rugby punches at its weight in terms of, look, we're in such trying times at the moment and there's so much going in. And do you think rugby's fulfilling its promise um, of that word character? Is it fulfilling its promise and delivering in extraordinary times to society? probably doesn't do as much as it, as it should and maybe as, as much as it could. Um, the point is having the territory of character is not a statement about just about how we are. It's a statement about how we want to be. So in itself, it's an aspirational positioning. And I think if it guides behaviour and you can keep looking back and saying, this sport is about character. Yes, there are, there are five values which we articulate at World Rugby. There's five that they articulate for example, the RFU and other unions, which aren't always exactly aligned, but to me, they all encapsulate, you know, doing the right thing, having character. It's a bit of an X factor. It's a difficult one to define. Mm. But when you talk about it, people tend to know what, what you mean and what the ethos of the sport is and what that, that, that X factor is in the sport of rugby, the solidarity part, you know, the discipline and all of the other values that, are, that, that make it up. And I, and I think certainly in these times, the solidarity part of, of, of the value system is, is coming through. I certainly think people are working together as best they can. At certainly the World Rugby Union and club competition level in most situations, there's been a coming together. It means that the differences are more exposed and more understood, yeah. um, but people are in the same room, which they weren't, I think, 12 months ago as much. Did it guide any of your decision-making around things that... that you know, we, we put this stamp on our organisation saying it is about character and we aspire. And were there any times where you were sitting there going, you know what, that this decision has to run alongside this vision of character? 
I, I think in the way that we manage, well, first of all, as a corp, as, as, as an organization, mm. the people who work there, and there's about 120 people at work at, at, at World Rugby, it, the values and character is something that goes into their annual KPIs mm. to determine have they followed those lines. So in the behavior of people within the organization, it's a very important value. Yeah. I think in its outward facing uh, manifestation in the, in the sport itself, it's probably behavior on the field and the discipline area mm. that most encapsulates where that is, how, how the uh, match officials manage the game, what the behavior is expected of players on and off the field. And yes, I think there have been moments where we've said, look, that's out of order. That doesn't work. And I don't want to go into specific cases of, yeah. of, of legal, but in a way it was a bit of an invisible hand. It was rare that we say, hang on, this is not about character. This should be about character. It was an invisible hand that if people knew that the sport was about its values. And that was very entrenched before I arrived. The, the Obviously, no one had tried to articulate it in one word, if you like, but it, it, very much there's a desire and everyone falls off the perch on these things occasionally, some incidents that happen. You know, we can go back to Bloodgate and all, all the rest of it. But ultimately, the, 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 I think the centre of gravity for the sport is around those values and, and, and as represented by a nice way of putting building it. character. Yeah. yeah, That's a nice way of putting it, actually. It doesn't kind of, it, it isn't so rigid and it isn't so, it doesn't make too many assumptions as well about other sports and, uh, you know. No, no, totally. It, it's, it's not meant to take a swipe at other sports and it's not meant to be too worthy either. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a character is, is almost a workmanlike value, you yeah. know, overriding value as well. So, so I, I, it sits well with the sport. Two other big changes that are, you know, one immensely positive, and I'm going to reflect on this personally. In 2016, um, as I watched England play in the women's team play in the Rio Sevens, I remember watching going, this is very intense. The, the hits are huge and the quality of rugby is quite unbelievable. As someone who's been in the sport for so long, it completely transformed my view on the women's game. Um, and it maybe it was way too late um but i remember watching that you must be hugely proud number one of having women's sevens not just men's sevens in the olympics sure, sure. That, that 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 feels like it was a defining moment for the sport yeah, i think it's one of the reasons why the olympics is so important to rugby was that equality around gender mm. um, and the fact that you know we needed you know high performing teams in the men's and the women's uh, 12 in each, and therefore the investment was put into ensuring that the competitions program and the strength and conditioning and the training and the pipelines and all the rest of it was set up over, over a period of time to arrive in Rio and look world-class as a sport, which we did, mm. it was incredibly satisfying. And, and I think, you know, one of the highlights uh, of, of my, you know, eight and a half years there and so on was, you know, standing in Rio, watching the medal ceremony, watching how it played out, and behind the scenes, there were, you know, lots of things were, you know, under the surface, uh, lots of issues, lots of problems, um, budgeting. We had to build a, a small stadium in, a, in, a, in, a, in an outward remote park of, of, of Brazil, of Rio and so on. So it was, it was very, very challenging, but very satisfying. The more challenging things are, the more satisfying they are when they actually work out on the night. And, and it very much did. Excellent. Um... So um, and, and the whole and Nick the whole women's program hmm. and the development and the growth 
of the percentage of the sport that is now played by women, which is between 25 and 30%, has been phenomenal over the period. And in our governance to have 30% or 33% of our council now women, which two years ago was 0%, is, yeah. is also phenomenal change. And, and, and I'll over to you. Great changes you've overseen and, and really underpinning the growth of the game so much at the moment um, is, is coming from the women's game, which I think is hugely exciting. So look, we're going to return to uh, we're going to return to Australia now um, a long time ago and a, a young a young Brett Gosper growing up in a home where your dad, Kevin, who, who was a 400 meter elite athlete himself. What was it like growing up in a home? Where, because we do know that majority of elite, elite athletes have their quirks and have their uh, their, their traits. <laughs> what was it like growing up in a home with uh, a dad who was a, a an elite athlete? Yeah, it was special actually because he was obviously he was quite a w well known. He was a, a former captain of the Australian Olympic team for the Rome Olympics in '60. He was a silver medalist at Melbourne in '56, um, and. You know, maintained quite a high profile as he went into administ sports administration as an elected uh, member and on the IOC and a vice president of the IOC and so on, and was a pretty high-flying businessman at the same time. So I was very proud uh, to have, to, you know, of my father at the time and was very excited by the achievements that, he, that he'd had. And he was, you know, very humble about all of that. And that sat well, and, but it just, it just felt special. And of course, I think it made you ambitious. You couldn't, you really never thought you'd emulate his achievements, nor were you really trying to. Mm. You just were interested in sport and you're interested in, in, in you know, paving your own uh, pathway to something else. And, and, and I fell into rugby and he loved watching rugby and he loved that sport. And so it was, it was, um, Nice to be playing at a certain level that was that made him hopefully quite proud. Um, but he enjoyed he enjoyed watching that transition of his sons playing in sport. My brother was also um, a, a, a good level elite rugby player as well, and so um, and my other brother was a very high level swimmer. So the sport reigned in the family, and there were always conversations around it. Um, so yeah, it was good. It was good fun. And was, was it always going to be rugby for you? Was that the sport that, because actually you probably, where were you? You were in Melbourne, weren't you? So wouldn't Yeah, you well, I just started you? playing rugby in Sydney at age six. Okay. Because my father was working, actually Shell uh, at the time, moved around the world quite a lot. And we found ourselves in Sydney. Um, and then age 10, moved to Melbourne. And I played a bit of Aussie rules and back and forth. Rugby was, you know, a rugby player was a bit like a panda bear in Melbourne in those days. There weren't too many of them about. Um, and so Aussie rules was a great skill uh, accumulator, though, in catching and kicking and coordination and so on. So I played a lot of, uh, of, of Aussie rules, actually, with the school who invented the sport back in the day. Um, but then my dad moved to England and I spent two years at school here in London between the age of about 12 and 15. Okay. Played rugby, picked up rugby again at that point, then went back to Australia and finished my last two years of school, first 15 in a, in a school in, in Melbourne again, and uh, just continued on into club rugby and beyond uh, at that point. So I flirted with both sports uh, quite a lot, but settled on rugby. Sport is bizarrely geographical in Australia, isn't it? It's, uh, really, it's yeah. crazy, really. It's If you're in Melbourne, it's this. If it, it, you know, That's right. It's, Sydney and Brisbane are rugby. 
Yeah. Um, they've been, uh, you know, overrun a bit by Aussie rules football has made yeah. some really good inroads in there. Rugby league is also uh, Brisbane and, and Sydney and the other states are very much Aussie rules states. So and you it's have unusual made- for a guy from Melbourne to be, to be playing, you know, in, in, in selections and whatever. There were very, very few of them. You and Mackenzie being the most uh, well-known Melbourne success story, who also was captain of my first 15 at school, or the, the same team, he's 10 years younger, uh, and then went on to be a Wallaby. But uh, not many Wallabies come out of uh, Melbourne. And um, you had a pretty successful club career, actually, because you, you went on to, very young, to go on and captain um, your club team in Melbourne. That's right. I played for the Melbourne Rugby Club, um, and yeah, was captain at twenty. I think it was was about the time, and and was a, had state selection with Victoria, um, had a selection with the Australian Under Twenty Ones team in the year that they played New Zealand Under Twenty One at uh, at the Sydney Cricket Ground as a curtain raiser to one of the tests that year. Um, yeah, and uh, and you faced the All Blacks as captain of Victoria, and therefore have. Faced a hucker? Faced a hucker a couple of times, actually. Played against New Zealand three times. Yeah. Um, and each time there was a different uh, way to face the hucker that was cleverly discussed and devised prior to the game, and none of them worked. <laughs> of course. <laughs> got beaten each time, and I'm sure each team... We sit there in these meetings saying, what are we going to do during the hucker? And we're thinking, bloody hell, we're talking about the hucker, or we've, we've lost this game if we're worried about that. This point <laughs> of time, but, yeah. It's amazing how it plays on the mind. It's now it, just... It, it just uh, does. And I think for Victoria, we all just pretended to ignore it and kept warming up in the dead ball zone. And when I played for when I played for the French Barbarians against the All Blacks, I think it was 86. Um, that was a very close game, actually. We lost, uh, but we lined up in a circle, looked at each other. So I've never actually seen a hucker. Right? <laughs> <laughs> on the field, denial. it was happening. And uh, I, I, I didn't see it. We're, You've worked out that the way to deal with a hucker is complete denial. That's it. That's it. Now, nowadays they stare it down, but I wish I'd seen it. I wish I'd seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, you know, if we reflect on how England faced the, the All Blacks in that semi-final. Um, it clearly had a huge impact on both teams, actually, at the end of it. So anyway, I love the fact you faced a hucker. It's one of my favourite parts of, of the sport. And, and, <laughs> it is and, great. And that takes us really onto your first life beyond sport moment. Tell me a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit about that. I think the first life beyond sport was, it was a bit of a changing event for me. I was selected to play in a Wallaby trial in Sydney uh, for the Tour de UK in 81. Um, I'd played a previous trial for the Tour, the Wallaby's first tour to Argentina um, about a year before that. So I was 19 for the Wallaby, for the Wallaby trial against Argentina, had a good trial but was really talked up a bit by the media. His first lesson is don't, uh, don't believe yours or anyone else's PR about you. Um, so I went into this game playing for the Australian 15 against the rest, had a good game, uh, got, in the, got in a taxi actually to get home back to the hotel. The selection was being announced the next morning at, at the hotel. And on the radio, the, the, the announcer uh, said, Brett Gosper can pack his raincoat uh, for, for England. He's, he's a definite selection. So, and of course, the next day um, they read the team out um, and I wasn't on it. And it was quite a, quite, quite a heavy blow at the time. 
Um, and as I'd really planned for success, I always felt I was going to go on that Wallaby tour, come back, get into my work, marry some local Australian girl or whatever, <laughs> and move through life in that way back in Australia. And what happened was I was so upset by it, I felt I, I could not play the off-season somewhere to get fit to have another run at it. And uh, what happened was through a series of connections, Paul McLean, the former Australian fly half and so on, through England, a guy called John Hall, mm -hmm. who I always meet up with him at rugby events and so on, he ran Gulliver's Travels, um, telling me he changed my life. Uh, the racing club showed interest in me, flew me to France uh, for a season and one season turned into eight or nine seasons with the racing club and I never returned to Australia. So is really this, that... Is, is this the biggest hissy fit in the history of, uh, of rugby <laughs> that I'm listening to? No, um, no, it was not a hissy fit. I just, I just loved playing in France so much. I couldn't imagine going back to Australia for anything. And, and at the time I was a graduate trainee when I left Australia with an ad agency called Ogilvy. And I played six months there. And of course, in those days, you were paid quite handsomely. Yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't need to work. But just before I was due to go back, I knocked on the door of Ogilvy and said, look, I'm a graduate trainee in your agency in Australia. And if you hire me for free for six months, I'll work for free. And then if you want to keep me, you can keep me. And that's what they did. Uh, they allowed me to work there for free for six months. And then at the end of it, I worked full time and I was, as you could in those days, uh, I was a professional ad person by day, mm. rugby player by night and weekends and uh, had, had the dual life, which was fantastic. But it, it was clearly a massive blow for you. How did you, um, what did they, did you go and ask, find, ask the question, why wasn't I picked? And no, I worked it out myself. I mean, look, okay. at the time I probably had an over uh, state opinion of my own uh, talents as you do um, in hindsight I can understand that that probably I wasn't good enough um, and again as I say certain media didn't didn't think that at the time but genuinely I I, I might have toured with the Wallabies but I'm I'm certainly not uh, sure that I'd have ever baked a, a more permanent role uh, with with the Wallabies at that time, there were a lot of very good players. Yeah, the Eller brothers. The there, well, the three Eller brothers got selected. I'd say Gary, who was the younger of the three, was vying. I was vying for the same position as, as Gary, mm. which was utility back, centre winger, and mm. so on. And there was one other as well kicking around. So um, I can't blame anyone other than myself. I wasn't emphatic enough to be selected, but I was knocking on the door. And when you're that close to something, you you get very disappointed. In my own mind, I'd built up. I hadn't written my ticket before I'd gone, but I'd been led to believe that I was very much in the jumpsuit. So I remember walking around Sydney the day after. Um, I don't know, get too emotional about too many things too often, but I walked around Sydney working out what I was going to do next, and I just mm -hmm. didn't know what to do. And I couldn't really talk. Every time I tried to talk about it, yeah. I choked up a bit. And so that was 24 hours of bitter disappointment. Um, and it was a bit tough. And, and it probably, the, the, the emotion was a bit accentuated because I actually lost my mother about six months before. So I sort of felt the world had tumbled down on me a little bit. And I, was, I felt a bit sorry for myself. But actually the antidote of coming to, to France, joining the racing mm -hmm. club team, and that adventure just began a whole new chapter in my life. And I can't have any regrets on what happened. You know, 
some things take you in a different direction and I and I'm and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm interesting that 24 hour I, I only give myself 24 hours to sulk and then you've got to then you've got to get on with things haven't you really yeah, that's totally right I mean you're in the, the agency business you 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 go in and pitch things and you I was in the ad business you pitch things you put your life into a pitch over a period of about a month or two months sometimes and then you're told no no someone else got it and you can fall apart or you just go, thank you very much, next pitch, and you've got to move on. You have to move on. Yeah. Um, it sounds like then you entered what was, sounds like a very joyous period, an exciting period in your life, because playing at a uh, racing club, which was known for its flamboyance and its, uh, you, you, it feels like you found home a little bit. Yeah. Very much so. Um, it was a group of players that were mischievous, fun, terrific players on the field. It was a club that had reignited its ambition to get back to the top table. It had been relegated prior to my arriving and it had just been promoted again. Um, it was probably the 30th ranked club when I arrived there in the country. Um, and, and as I say, as I left, nothing to do with me, but it just happened to be the, 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 the top club in the country as I left. Um, and that journey of the team, uh, and, and often, you know, it's referred to at the time as the first professional club in European rugby, um, not because they were being paid for the first time, because they went about things professionally. They recruited Jean-Pierre Reeve, Robert Paparan Board, Laurent Caban, yeah. Frank Manel, Jean-Baptiste Lafont was, was there already. Um, Gerald Martinez also was recruited. Um, and I'm forgetting players probably that were... were what was Jean-Pierre Reeve like? One of my great heroes, actually. Uh, just, just unbelievable. Wonderfully inspirational person off the field as much as on the field. Um, very cultured, very well read, somebody who qualified as a lawyer and as a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Unusual, only in France would that happen. Um, he was I'm a wonderful... Out of, out of our depth in that sort of audience. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. That's right. He's, he's a wonderful influence and, 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 and was really the starting point of the major recruitment once Jean-Pierre Reeve turned up. He had to play an entire year in the seconds because one of the to stop clubs recruiting players for high money, they made sure there was this rule you had to play in the seconds all year. So he was captain of France, but playing in our second team every weekend, uh, which was quite unusual. But he drew other players like Robert Paparan board, Claude Ache, who's now running 2023, into the mix, Laurent Caban and other players that, 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 that turned up to make the racing club ultimately finalist in 87 which is which is where I uh, was was in the team and in 1990 they went on and won the championship and that was the year I retired so I consider my retirement a contributing factor to their championship win in 1990 but it, it, it's hilarious listening to you I'm not sure whether it's funny or not but the level of professionalism um, that existed in French rugby in the 80s which there's almost this go across the channel to a clear kind of I mean, completely almost the other way around, really, an anti-professionalism that was going on in the, the UK system. I, you know, I remember these images of the, you know, the British, the, the, the English team getting their first mobile phones and people questioning whether it was near professionalism. Um, and that was even 10 years after all of this. 
So yeah. French, French rugby, club rugby was in the, the thick of professionalism, really. Look, I think amateurism is a British concept. I think it grew out of Oxford and Cambridge, and you've all seen Chariots of Fire and the, the attitudes around that. I'm not sure in America it was really understood. I'm not sure in France they wanted to understand it. Mm. Um, in France, they felt amateurism, I mean, profession wasn't that you got paid. Professionalism meant that was your only job or the primary source of your income. So where it wasn't the primary source of your income, although it probably was for most players there, um, they didn't consider it professional. So it, it, it was just a different atmosphere. It was quite a paradox that when the sport turned professional, one federation decided to delay their turning professional by a year, which was France. Yeah, the monitorium. <laughs> um, and the other aspect that um, I want to share, I suppose, with you is in those early days as well, and this is a, I, I, I'm, it's not particularly a well-disguised question, but when I look at back and the conversation that's being had at the moment over concussion and injury in, in, in rugby at the moment, and the magic sponge days, as we'd know, as you and I would know them, yeah. do you reflect back and um, do you reflect back and worry about the, the your own knocks that you took? Because I do, and and as an amateur player, I worry slightly about the knocks I did. you worry about the, your own knocks? I know you're in the back. I didn't worry about them then, but you do you do worry. Look, I don't unduly worry too much what, what happened, what happened, and I wouldn't trade what I did. I think you worry yeah. about things you wish you hadn't done yeah. um, or you worry about things you can affect. I try and keep it in those two categories. But, um, look, we, we took knocks, and I remember uh, in those days, and France was a pretty... Uh, brutal old regime in club rugby through the 80s. Um, there wasn't a lot of protection afforded by referees or, or, or game management and so on. And, and it was a pretty brutal game. And you've only got to look at some of the videos at the time. Mm. A lot of that's been, well, virtually all of it, I think, is being cleared up. It's very rare yeah. now to see any sort of intentional foul play um, at, at the elite level. But in those days, it was pretty Fights. prolific. Fights, you mean. Um, and a lot of the knocks you took weren't this. Yeah. <laughs> you think two-thirds of concussions now happen in the tackle and two-thirds to the tackler. I'd say two-thirds of concussions in those days were probably clenched fist hit <laughs> the head. <you> know? <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I woke up a few times in the shower um, and I remember playing through games where I didn't really know where I was, should have been off the field and so on. Um, the world has changed dramatically, both in terms of the regulation of foul play, but also the protocols in protecting the player who can't protect himself. Very aware that a player cannot make decisions about himself and welfare on the field because he'll always say, I'm okay. Mm. And that's why actually the whole HIA protocol of taking players off the field and saying, you know, we're taking you off to assess you, we're not taking you off, is the easiest way to get a player off the field and then keep him off if he has yeah, to be. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, when I saw that story, I, I worried, you know, a fair bit uh, recently about it. Not not just purely because of what I saw, but I just I felt it was interesting to get because you did play in the 80s in France. That it was uh, a fairly unforgiving place. And I'd imagine you had some, the, the fixtures down in the southwest of the country um, were particularly precious, uh, <laughs> I'd imagine. Well, but most of them were down there because there's really no elite rugby north yeah. of Paris. And in those days, Stade Francais didn't. They are in third division. So mm -hmm. we were the Paris team. And when we played in places like Perpignan and, and other places, we were absolutely booed and 
spat on <laughs> we were the Parisian and we played into that we um you know the whole pink bow tie thing started from us mm. doing all sorts of stunts that were really to show that we were all about entertainment and showbiz and we called ourselves the showbiz mm. and we played games with you know French berets in Bayonne we came on on bicycles and did a lap of the field um we we wore bald wigs for one game to to, as an, in dedication to the, the then commentator, Pierre Salviak, who was bald. Um, we, we did all sorts of, of, of stunts. We actually tried to get approval to land at a game in a helicopter over Cologne, which was our home ground, um, but they didn't grant us airspace to do that. But we built up these things. Then we, and this was the year of 87 that we ended up in the final with pink bow ties. We came on in blazers at Montferron for the quarterfinals against Brive and saluted the crowd like arrogant you know, stars and all of this would just incite, you know, <laughs> the opposition would just not be able to see the ball for the first 20 minutes. They were so pissed off with us. It's like a more entertaining form of the hucker, really. Well, it was, it was just, we, we used to have meetings on a Thursday and say, what are we going to do this weekend? Yeah. We're going to get, we're going to lose. So we need to go out with a bang. And we kept winning. And, you know, we ended up in the final in the year. We were nowhere near good enough to be in a final. Um, and, and, you know, the, the coup de grace was, what, you know, what are we going to do for the final? We'll wear pink bow ties. And, of course, everyone ran on with pink bow ties. The backs played the entire game with the pink bow ties. The television audience for that 87 game was 8 million people, which is a, like a final of a Six Nations these mm. days, and a record crowd at the Parc des Princes because those stunts transcended the sport at the time. And, and you know, some of... Uh, the time that the, the, the backs also put out a, a, a single and were appearing on variety shows. And the, the whole of France were fascinated by this phenomena of, of what was called the showbiz at the time, which then became the Eden Park brand, ultimately. As, as an ad agency man at the time, were you under pressure to come up with the best ideas for the team? Well, it was all part of it. I think they were, the, the, the group were better marketers than I ever will be, but, but together we... <laughs> We did come up with some some ideas to the point where there was a Six Nations weekend cancelled, totally cancelled due to snow. That would have been eighty six, eighty seven, and they had so they had two or three hours of of airtime booked on the biggest free to air state like the BBC, and we got a call saying, "Would the showbiz fill that two hours with sketches and interviews and highlights and?" <laughs> and we did, but we had to meet and rehearse sketches at a bar called the Washington Square in Paris. All night we were rehearsing and absolutely shitting ourselves about this live slot we had the next day. But we did it and, and on we went. And, and as I say, the boys put out a single uh, that went lead, by the way, but, but had, them on every, <laughs> had them on every entertainment show. So it was a very special period, that whole decade with the team. And, and as I say, it culminated in a in a couple of finals, one unsuccessful and one successful. Um, and th th that takes us on to your second life beyond sport moment. Tell us a little bit about that, because it does involve um, the final. Yeah, the, the final we played in 87, um, we we're all lined up and ready to go against Toulon. Mm -hmm. The racing hadn't been in a final since 1959. Toulon had never won a final. We'd won in 1959. And... In any club, there was talk about the ghosts of the past team that were better than the team that, you know, the great team you all aspire to be. The 1959 team, which actually was the year I was born, was the team uh, that was the, the that we were trying to beat in, in, in our minds. 
Um, but the week of training, the Wednesday night training, Robert Paparan board called me across and said, um, I have a problem. Uh, we've had a, a protest from too long, which is we can't feel three foreign players. No one knew of the Lord. No one knew. We'd been operating with three or four foreign players on the field through the year. Um, no one was aware of any issue. What was a foreigner? I wasn't even sure of. It was about your passport, I guess, in those days. Mm-hmm. But, but too long to put in this protest. Um, actually, the coach, Daniel Ero, came out and said we hadn't ever put in the protest. It's come from somewhere else, a journalist or whatever. But the fact was you only allowed two players, uh, not three. And we had only foreign props, a South African or Romanian, essentially. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I think we had a Georgian in reserves and so on. Um, so we either had to not have the props on the field or, or me, and we had a lot of backs. So I was the easiest one to replace. So I, I had to stand there. And Robert said, well, no, but you'll sit on the bench. And I said, I can't sit on the bench. If someone in the backs is injured, I can't come on. You need that place. Mm. So I'm going to sit up in the stand with you. I, I, can't, I can't do that. Mm. And it was, it was a culmination of my time in France, and it just ended. In a way, it was bitter, but in a funny sort of way, I lived that day like all of the players in the team. I was in the, in the coach to the ground, the pre-dinner, you know, the pre-lunches you have in France, the the changing room i walked out with the players to the end of the tunnel at the parc des princes um i then sat in the stand with the coach robert paparan boy and i totally felt i was on the field the entire game and i was totally uh distraught when they lost and went to every celebration afterwards which was set up even though we'd lost and there was a uh, an open bus trip down the champs elysees Mm-hmm. which I was on as well, which we went and it was all set up before because we, again, you had to set these things up as if you were going to win. Mm-hmm. We did it anyway, even though we lost, but it was a, it, 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 as I say, tested your, your own self-indulgence as a player, as an individual and your, and, and your, your, your membership of a team and, 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 and your allegiance to a team. And I felt very much a team player and it taught me a lesson that rugby does make you very much a team person. And I, again, don't have a bad memory of not playing in that final. Um, would have liked to have played in it, but kind of felt I did in a way because I'd accompanied the team all the way through to that moment. It almost feels like a, the completely different response to that first Life Beyond Sport moment of not making the team, <clears throat> that actually you'd grown. And, and it takes a lot of strength to do that, you know, Brett. That's not an easy thing to do. Is, um, did you give yourself 24 hours on that one as well? No, I, I, I think it was more the other people telling me how devastated they were for me yeah. that made me feel bad for them a bit and feeling bad about me. It was less, I, I, maybe it was because of what happened to me <laughs> previously with the Wallaby thing that I was able to digest that and put it in perspective and say, this is not a big deal. Um, I'm just pleased I was here and spent the, the, the time I did with a decade at the racing club and it was time to move on. Um, and I, I felt it was time to move on from, from, from that moment a bit. I played one or two games in the next uh, season and then decided my advertising career was not allowing me the time to play rugby. It's time to, uh, to call it a day. And that's, the, that's something that ran in tandem um, with your career. A meteoric rise, really, um, in the world of advertising. Um, 
must have how and I just said meteoric rise do you think you would enjoy that sort of success now in the advertising industry that we have now compared to the one uh, back then yeah, well, it's, got, it's gotten far more complex now than it was yeah. then it yeah. was a simpler business then um, it attracted a lot of talented people so it was very competitive I'm not sure it attracts uh, quite the same talent as it did in those days although some very talented people obviously in it um, yeah I don't know it's, it's, it's uh, hard to know I do think the duality of, of being a quasi-professional rugby player and working in, in advertising contributed to each other. It gave me a, a real clear mind and a perspective on things and a discipline. And I think that duality was, was very important to both sides of the equation. It just became imbalanced at the back end. And I'd turn up to training late, you know, in, 80, in, in 88, 88-89 I was sort of playing as much as I could but really finding it difficult the 89-90 season was when I gave it away completely but I turned up late to training and Robert Paparan board would say well you're not playing this weekend so go and play over with the seconds and I'd storm off and you know it, it became untenable after a while and that was where you knew it wasn't completely professional because I was owned more in fact by my ad agency than I was that was my career more now than my than my sport and um it, it feels like so so i've got a couple of questions here number one um pitching for business you talked about before um has a real win or lose factor to it and as does playing sport as well we, what, what do you get the same feeling did you get the same feeling when you were pitching for business as you did winning or losing a game uh, when, when did you dance a jig more was it winning big bits of business or was it winning at, at rugby do you know, I, it was probably on the pitch during the years I was playing, I'd have to say. Mm. Um, I think when we won the quarterfinal against Breve in 80s and then won the semi-final, then we're in the final and all of that. Lovely. It yeah. was overwhelming. Um, and look, I made sacrifices. The racing toured South America mm. and I was involved in a Pepsi pitch at the time for Ogilvy. Mm. And I said, I can't go on that tour because this yeah. pitch is important for the agency and therefore my career and so on. And they all went up and had a ball. And, and so you're always managing, you know, do I, do I stay back overnight for the pitch or do I go to rugby training? So we've got a massive game this weekend. How do I make that up? What do I do? So I was making calls all the time. Um, but the joy of winning with your teammates, <laughs> at a big, massive game uh, was, was, was very hard. And they're the pillars that stay in your mind uh, when you look back and so on. As I say, with the, with the French Barbarians, we almost beat the All Blacks in, uh, in La Rochelle in 86. It still stands out as a fantastic day and game and whatever. But had we beaten them, I think yeah. that would have been a jig. Old. That would have been <laughs> a jig. Like jig you know, <laughs> so um, you, the other thing I gather is that, and, and I was thinking about this, reflecting on your life beyond sport. I've always, I've always thought you're quite a bit of a planner and quite a steady uh, you know, steady in your decision-making, but it feels like you've run off gut feel in a lot of your decisions as well. What's the balance for you around those? Because some of your decisions feel like you're actually a bit of a, to hell with it, I'm out of here. And, <laughs> and, um, and I've never had that picture of you until I read your Life Beyond Sport moments, I think. Yeah, look, I, I think most people are probably guided by their emotions and even the most rational of us. 
post-rationalize and, and find the, 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 the deep people say, you know, write down a paper, piece of paper, the fours and the against and so on. I've never done that because I've always thought, kind of knowing my heart, what I want to do here and where I want to go, where I don't want to be, um, and I'll make it work elsewhere and so on. And that, you don't always make emotional decisions in, inside the workings of, of, of the job you've got. They have to be a combination of gut feel, but mostly evidence-based. In yeah. your own career, it's a very emotional thing. Mm. You've got to feel good about what you're doing and where you are, and you have to take a few risks occasionally, and you've got to be scared by the unknown a little bit also. And if you've done that a couple of times, then... It's not that you're not afraid to do it again, but you know that doing it again is exhilarating and, mm. and, and, and it may not work out and it may work out, but, but you, you, you want to take that risk sometimes. So I'm probably in my own career guided, yeah, not by some grand plan, but feeling I'm in the right place and therefore I'll do a better job and that may lead me to somewhere else or not. Lovely. So let's come on to your uh, final Life Beyond Sport moment. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think the final one, you know, comes into the, 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 the pinnacle. Well, it's not the pinnacle of my own achievement, but it was an event which I think uh, was very important for the sport. Mm. And, and certainly in my role as CEO of World Rugby, it helped dramatically um, create success for two World Cups. And it was a moment of, I'd say, boldness and madness uh, because we know from talking to Eddie Jones and so on that he was shouting from the sideline, yeah. kick, kick. <laughs> take the draw, <laughs> take the draw. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm talking obviously about the Japan versus South Africa hmm. historic upset during the 2015 World Cup, the miracle in Brighton. And fortunately, the captain of the day decided to ignore Eddie and run the ball and we had that historic victory uh, uh, of Japan over South Africa and that game itself had a television audience in Japan of about two two million um, probably by the end of it a few more but it averaged about two million two days later when they were back on free to air I think it was the Samoa game there were 25 million Japanese watching their national team pulverizing any domestic record um, in, in Japan or in or, or anywhere else in the world for a rugby game and ensuring that the underdog and, and the story appeal of the 2015 World Cup was sealed um, and the world was interested suddenly in that World Cup beyond what it would have been otherwise mm. and suddenly where we were headed to in 2019 where we were worried about ticket sales and the public being interested in being overshadowed by the by the Olympics uh, that were also slated, obviously, for 2020. Um, all of a sudden, we had an audience, a public, a government in Japan interested, and it just made life easier. And the most important thing for world rugby, for the good of the sport, is to generate commercially successful and shop window World Cups. Mm. And that moment certainly helped. So I'd say, well, maybe not life-changing, it was a very, very important moment uh, that was not due to anything I did or anyone else did other than the captain that day who said, let's run it. And the players who scored the try and, and, and the effort that went into the whole 80 minutes for them. <laughs> and it was a highly emotional, you know, a lot of the imagery uh, coming out of Brighton that day were of Japanese fans in tears. 
Um, were you, did you weep that day? Were there, were there tears shed? I, I wept because I wasn't there. I, I, <laughs> I, saw, I watched 24 of the 48 games yeah. on the spot. I went all across and back and forth across the country. I think that's a World Cup record in itself. Yeah. You couldn't do it in Japan. It was, it was, it was just not doable. Um, but I happened to be in Brighton the next day mm. uh, for um, uh, it was Samoa USA, and it was like you should have seen you should have seen things yeah. yesterday. You should have seen <laughs> yesterday. And I don't know. It was like it was like turning up to to, to you know uh, some historic event the day after, and people trying mm. to explain to you that you would never understand what happened the day before. And it was, but look, it was such an amazing event. We we're all completely on a high that day afterwards. And um, reflecting on Japan and uh, the, it's a different culture working there, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, it's it's tough place to work. Yeah, very much. It's a tough place for Westerners to work. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 and, and it's a tough place for Westerners, Westerners to completely fathom um, the processes, the protocols, the hierarchy of decision making, what is yes, what is no, what is maybe, uh, what is never, <laughs> you know, um, who, who really is making the calls, um, who, who are you upsetting or offending, um, all of that was a learning process uh, for all of us um, and we're very much in their country and very much um, applying uh, our own efforts to 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 to, to, to make it work, mm. um, and we had our moments. You know, it, it ended up, I think, being the most successful for a lot of reasons uh, World Cup in in history, um, and it was the most challenging World Cup in history for sure. Um, so, but it was there were some very key moments along the way mm. where we, you know, clearly threatened to take the World Cup away from them if changes weren't made, and we had that luxury up to a certain point in time where you couldn't mm -hmm. change the destination of a world cup beyond a certain date but up to that point in time we really did consider it a couple of times or certainly threatened it because things weren't moving the way we wanted to but again uh everyone kept saying it'll be all right in the night and they'll uh, they'll do what they need to do and the japanese did what they needed to do um at the right points in time and made it happen mm -hmm. and, and the team that led it with alan gilpin in particular did an incredible job in in getting that World Cup across the line in glorious fashion. It, it, it's interesting. It, sometimes people thrive in that pressure. Um, I was speaking to uh, Christoph Duby, who runs the Olympic Games, and speaking to him just before the summer and the Games of Mechanics, I said, how are you? He goes, fantastic. I said, well, so he goes, oh, you know, the pressure I'm feeling is fantastic at the moment. <laughs> and I thought, actually, working in Japan is, is a different type of pressure, actually. No question. Sort of out of control. Well, there's a famous NBA coach who talks about pressure being a privilege, and that's how you should see it, that not many people have the privilege of being under pressure in certain moments of time, whether it be in career or in sport. And I think you've got to see it that way, and it was certainly privileged to be under pressure in Japan, yeah. but it was satisfying to see things end up in the right way. Well, you couldn't have asked for a better semi-final or final combo, really, wasn't it? It was uh, that uh, semi-final England All Blacks was pretty unique, and actually... The final has produced one of the most stunning moments to see the first black captain of the box lift the trophy was was an unforgettable global moment, really. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic story and a fantastic moment. Um, 
you know, maybe not the greatest game of rugby, depending on what side of the of the of the field you sit, but certainly a, a great storyline for the entire game and the outcome. And I was sitting a couple of rows behind Francois Pinard, who was hugging uh, President Ramaphosa at the time yeah. at the end of the game, and it was a hugely emotional moment for, for South Africa again. Um, and and yeah, a, a, a wonderful outcome for the game for the sport beyond South Africa. Yeah, we had Sia Khaleesi on last season, actually. Yeah, he's a wonderful uh, person. Talking about the moments, what a remarkable um, man he is. And it, yeah. it's interesting to see him starting to use his platform um, for social change, uh, doing a lot around domestic mm -hmm. violence as well. He's a very important person in the world. Um, he, is, and, yeah. and he has the power to do that. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's an important question. Do you think rugby players are punching their weight in terms of, uh, because we've never had a great history of rugby players being vocal. It's always been a bit of a contained sport, quite a conservative sport in that sense. Yeah. As we're, as we're seeing more athletes become more vocal, is your hope that some of the rugby players will become a bit more outspoken and start using their platform for social change? A lot of them would probably argue that they do. I think rugby is such a team sport that players mm. and individuals uh, hesitate to, to, to raise their head and their voice above others and, 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 and signify that they're more important in some way than in other individual sports players feel more comfortable to do. So, look, I think where that's possible, where players develop a, a profile that's natural, um, uh, it, it, it's okay, but I don't think it's something that we're crying out for. Uh, I think it happens naturally. You have the profile and you have the power to do those things. Um, and Sia has that, and other other players have that potentially. Um, and and all and all good to them if they can if they can use that to, to the to the betterment. So it, it looks like, in a way, that, uh, that that World Cup, which is so well timed for 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 World Rugby, considering the pandemic, and we we haven't talked much about that. Um, which is fine because we've probably um, we've talked about that a lot, haven't we? We've, we've talked about uh, you know all of us have talked quite a lot about that, and obviously it's putting the game <clears throat> under under immense pressure. But as you look back now, um, talk to me about the legacy you feel after eight years, eight and a half years in the role. What's the what's the thing that probably makes you proudest um, when you reflect back? Brett, on a phenomenal eight and a half years. No, look, there are a number of things. And again, I've overseen some of these things, but I wouldn't take the credit for having done them or, 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 or made them happen or whatever. But I, you know, they happened on, on my watch and, and, and obviously, you know, it's nice to, to, to feel the credit for them. But I, you know, what I was pleased to see happen during my watch, let's say, um, obviously the return to the Olympics was a massive thing and massive thing for the sport. And it has a huge effect on, on participation numbers and government interest around the world, um, uh, university education, school introduction onto curriculum and so on. So the Olympics is a huge uh, driver for the sport, uh, men and women. And so that was, to me, uh, you know, a, a, a big moment. I do think changing the brand from IRB to World Rugby was, was huge. Um, I think the work that we did and it's going to come into focus now, uh, both uh, publicly and legally, uh, around the concussion protocols, mm. the HIA. This was groundbreaking work, and we were fighting 
a media war at the time on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And, and it's proved to be highly successful and, and groundbreaking. Um, and I think that, that I've been very proud of. I've been very proud uh, to see the increase in women's influence, women in rugby, whether it be administration, players, and mm. so on over, over the period. Um, I think the two successful men's World Cups, Japan and, and England, have been critical for the sport, both in funding terms but image terms. Um, Women's World Cup in France and Ireland were also hugely successful. Um, the, 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 look, I'm going at these. I'm just the long, saying, the long old list. The world, the world Series has been has been yeah. successful. Yeah. The HSBC collaboration has been uh, fantastic, um, and the general growth in, in in our revenues and the participation numbers, which have doubled over the period that that, that I've seen, um, are, are a huge source of pride. And I think you know. That was the path the sport was on when I arrived, yeah. and it's the path the sport's on as I leave. So, you know, I'm happy to have played some some, some role in, in in some of those areas. And, and you're heading off to um, a new role at the NFL now, and I, I, I'm not going to ask you too much about that because you, you haven't started there. What I am going to ask is is you've been your own boss for pretty much nearly near enough thirty years now, right? You know, having owned agencies, run agencies, uh, being the CEO of World Rugby, and you, you're going to have a line manager now. How does Brett Gosper feel like about having a line manager? Do you know, I don't think you never don't have a boss um, <laughs> in a way. There's always, you know, whether it be a line manager, whether it be a chairman, whether it be a board, um, you, you always feel you're answerable to yourself and someone else as yeah. well. So, well, that'll be part of the novelty, having a line manager and, and, and part of the newness and, and so on. Um, my line manager. Review is processes, review processes, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> All of that. Um, <laughs> looking forward to it. I'm not sure I'm going to be very good at it, but <laughs> looking, look, looking forward to it. And hoping I've got a lot of help in, in getting me through all that. But I like the people I've met at the NFL and my line authority people are good people and smart people. I'm, I'm hoping to learn by going to the NFL. I'm, I'm too old for a lot of things, but I'm certainly not too too old to learn. And I think part of leaving world rugby and, and moving to another area is that I still want to learn and understand more. And I think the NFL is, is an exemplary league mm. in, in, in the world for any uh, sports lover to be involved in and, and understand more about. So I'm hoping to contribute, but I'm hoping to learn a lot more than to contribute probably listen i'm really excited for you in that new role and uh you seem to have a real appetite for it despite and this i'm only saying this because this amazed me brett you're 62 years old which surprised me not quite 61 but yeah (laughs) you are but anyway um you still seem to have that appetite and ambition which is wonderful uh, and excitement about moving on what i'm also excited for you about is a World Cup in France, where you have no responsibility, <laughs> uh, because I think you're going to be the man to know um, <laughs> over there. Brett, thanks for spending um, such a delightful um, hour with you um, just then. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm excited for your future, um, both in moving home and moving role at the moment, and wish you and your family uh, much health over the, the next few months, and thank you for what you've done uh, for the sport of rugby. Thank you for joining us on Life Beyond Sport. 
Well, thanks for having me on. It's been uh, really good fun. Therapeutic, actually, Nick. And uh, nice of you to have done some good research. And, and, and I've, enjoyed the, I've enjoyed the session with you. So uh, all the best to you and your family as well uh, and to your business. And, uh, and we'll talk soon, I'm sure. So thank you uh, for joining me for the latest episode of Life Beyond Sport. New episodes come out each Monday, so please don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow the podcast on whichever platform you listen on. Thank you very much and take care out there.